0: women receiving these comments, men also receive comments of a different kind and different messages. And that leads to different manifestations of eating pathology. So the manifestations of how people interpret and carry out these body image expectations are different, but the kinds of mental health consequences of that are things that we cannot tell or we cannot kind of predict from the outside. So this is something that's an internal experience hence why story sharing is so important.
1: That was Steph Ung. She is the founder of Body Banter, which has been featured on media platforms like the BBC, Channel News Asia, SCMP, and more. Through providing opportunities for community building, advocacy, and open discussions, She hopes that body banter can amplify the voices of individuals and empower them to be the driving forces behind creating a more accepting and accommodating world. She's currently a PhD candidate at the University of Hong Kong, led by her fascination with the relationship between language and mental health. In this episode, we discuss topics around cultural differences and the power of language and body image, mental health, and how we develop healthy identity with fitness. What's up, people? Welcome back to the Tackling Minds Podcast. I'm Emily, and this series called Sup Man is a dedicated space for men to feel heard, feel seen and feel connected. I believe it is important that we advocate for each other, regardless of gender, and to foster productive conversations around gender-specific challenges. I'm really glad you're here today. Body image, eating disorders, and anything to do with mental health within men just mm-hmm. sounds so heavy and daunting for a lot of people to talk about. Absolutely. Now, you founded Body Banter, and you represent Body Banter, as well as executive director for Body Banter. And I love that you are pursuing your interest and your passion by being a PhD candidate at the University of Hong Kong. Can you tell us more about this interest and this passion?
0: Yeah, thanks, Ems. First of all, just again, just wanted to say thank you for having me on the pod. Um, I've been eyeing the Tackling Minds podcast for a while. And when you were like, you want to do an episode? I was like, yeah. (laughs) So very thrilled to be here. And yeah, just a little bit on body banter and why that came to be and how that came to be. It came from my lived experience, actually. So in my teens growing up in Hong Kong, I experienced an eating disorder and that really got me kind of aware of the ways that we are lacking conversations about body image and mental health issues more generally within our context. In particular, I found that it was not just difficult for us to be talking about these issues because of, let's say, stigma, although that plays a role. You know, the cultural norms surrounding emotional disclosure and also surrounding mental health and mental illness in general, definitely, you know, stigma and attitudes toward these issues play a role. But I also realized that it was really, it also came down to language and how we actually don't have vocabulary for a lot of the experiences we have surrounding mental health issues or mental health concerns. So that came to my attention because I realized that when I was sitting in kind of a a clinical setting or within a therapy room and trying to to share my story in Cantonese, saying to the therapist, this is what I've been experiencing, it was nearly impossible. I also chalk it down to my um, lack of proficiency in the language. But there was also a lot there that came up for me that was um, that showed me that we kind of need to start more conversations surrounding the surrounding these issues. And something that I'm realizing in my PhD studies is that it's not just about vocabulary; it's really about that those conversational skills and the comfort with which we engage in these conversations. It's like the more we we sit with each other and talk about these issues, we're going to create essentially these patterns of of norms that we communicate with. So that's kind of what I'm interested in looking at in my PhD. Um, so in in brief, in brief terms, what I'm looking at in my PhD is how our attitudes and the understandings we have toward mental health and illness within the Hong Kong context are are kind of created through discourse, through our conversations. So I'm interested particularly in looking at how lived experience storytelling Um, what we have experienced in terms of our mental health experiences and the way we tell it. Um, Learning how to tell those stories openly and honestly can help us start discussions with people who have never experienced these things before or people who don't know how to express those experiences. So I'm interested in looking at mental health issues from a linguistics perspective which again feeds back into the work with Body Banter. Definitely just something that's been a central part of our mission is to start conversations with youth populations in particular about the topic of body image and mental health. So that's a a wrap-up of of the things.
1: (laughs) I would like to categorize that as wholesome, heartful, purposeful, and passionful. Now, they might sound like fancy words, but I think it is so important for people to get to know your driving factor behind what you do it's not just that oh i'm interested in studying people from an outside perspective Mm. like how some people might think scientists are you just like to study things and people as objects but not necessarily have an, an emotional connection to it or or actually apply it to their own lives so i think that is something so important for people to understand and get to know and that's another format of getting to know one another not just about oh hey what do you do oh you're a phd candidate And is that all they're going to label you? Is that all they're going to label somebody else? But it's more of, well, why is she in that position? What is her driving force? And perhaps that's not something she wants to do, but she might feel pressured from a family to do. Mm -hmm. Who knows? There's so much we don't know about other people, just on what they front. So that is a segue into body image as well. My experience with body image is so much Mm -hmm. on our own interpretation of what is presented in front of us, including our reflection in the mirror. Mm. So this series on Tackling Minds is called Subman and it focuses on mental health for men. And to Mm. some men or some women, that might sound like, are you talking about depression or mental illness? I'm not talking about that specifically. That might come up. But in general, all of the conversations that we have with women, there's no reason why we can't have the same conversation around men. And granted, Mm. they might be different because of existing societal issues. Now, this is something I read. Journal of Psychology of Men and Masculinity
0: in 2013
1: reported that approximately 95% of the 153 college-age men surveyed were dissatisfied with their Mm. their bodies on some level. I forgot to take a breath. And a 2014 study in the Journal of Body Image analyzed four studies of undergraduate men and found that over 90% of the men in the studies struggle in some way with body dissatisfaction mm. and negative emotions, thoughts, or opinions towards their body. Mm. When I read this, I was taken back because yeah. we hear a lot more about girls and women, young women, of well, actually women of all ages, reporting more body image issues mm. and reporting more help that they're seeking or, or guidance but mm. when it came to men we don't read about it much in the magazines or maybe on our social media platforms unless we are interested in the topic and dive into studies absolutely yeah so in body mantra i love that it empowers voices and conversations about body image and mental health and within your personal experience in studying could you help align us on the language on body image first
0: I think definitely there is there are some misconceptions about what body image or the term even refers to. A lot of people, as you say, M's um, really they they think that body image is it almost always refers to something that's a problem. You know when people even just say body image, they might already be in their heads thinking about an eating disorder or kind of a clinical pathology relating to body image, let's say being highly distressed when someone doesn't look a certain way or feeling very distressed about appearance traits. But actually body image in itself is a neutral term. It starts from what you see in the mirror. So in that way, I think people understand that body image has to be something that you kind of reflects back to you something that you perceive yourself to be for people and and looking at the mirror, for example, can create a picture in your mind about yourself. So that's the way in which you will start to kind of internalize that image. So first it starts from what you see in the mirror and then it leaks into your psychological state in the sense that you start to think about, hey, what does this appearance mean about me? How does this affect the way that others perceive me? How does that affect my own self-concept? So that's how it starts to impact a person's psychological state. Um, And then there is also something about body image or the construct or the concept of body image that some people, that most people don't actually know, which is that it also encompasses how you feel in your body. And that includes, for example, there's a lot of diet culture messaging surrounding how you should feel guilty if you have eaten past fullness and the feeling of being bloated, Um, And when people talk about being bloated, a lot of the time I find that it it simply means that they're feeling not so great about themselves. Obviously, there is the objective kind of markers of bloatedness. Let's say you feel like your stomach is expanding and that you're feeling very uncomfortable because you've eaten something that, let's say, it's causing some gargling in your stomach. (laughs) For me, that's usually milk. Um, But that in itself has nothing to do with my self-concept or it shouldn't in an objective way affect the way that I feel fundamentally about myself. When we talk about it in in that way, we can say, you know, after eating milk, that doesn't like immediately make you a worse person. (laughs) When we say it, when we say it now, it seems really obvious. But when, for example, you're experiencing those gargling symptoms, It can sometimes be hard to unravel the diet culture messaging that tells you, hey, you know, like if you feel like you're there's something wrong, quote unquote, with your body and that you've instigated this wrongness, then somehow that kind of said something about your character as well. So I think the way that we look at the body image concept, it starts definitely from something that is appearance-based. And from, from that surface level, I think a lot of people understand and think that body image is only kind of constrained to that area of what we see in the mirror. And that's why body image is linked to things like vanity and self-obsession and those surface level traits. But what I don't think a lot of people appreciate is that there's a lot of, it's, it. That's the first level only. It's the tip of the iceberg, and then it leaks into other aspects of our experience, including social life, self-concept, and how we feel inside of our bodies, whether we feel like we're safe in our bodies, and whether our bodies feel like a home or whether we feel like an alien in it.
1: Body image isn't just about the aesthetics, isn't just about vanity, isn't just about from the appearance of what you see. however, mm-hmm. that that appearance is sometimes incited. So, for example, you and I grew up in a more Chinese-central culture. I don't know about any other Asian culture, but let's let's say Chinese for now. And it's very typical and common for us to hear from our peers that they have similar experiences growing up. And that is every Chinese New Year, it's somewhat anxiety-filled because you know that aunt or that cousin of your dad is going to comment on you. Hey, your daughter is getting fat, huh? What have you been feeding her and mm. we got ears we hear that mm, yeah. <laughs> could you please expand on culturally how does this affect us? it's not just something that we grew up with from social media unfortunately the kids today do grow up with social media but for us back then we didn't have social media yeah. yet it's prevalent throughout different ages even our moms even our grandmas mm-hmm. in this age they would have some form of body image issues.
0: Absolutely. And it's so culturally rooted to kind of use the body as a starting point for conversation. A lot of people that I work with within the body banter community have definitely talked about just resonating with that experience of being commented on and starting to link at a very early age character and morality to eating behaviors and body size. So that's something that is very rooted in our social norms, as you say, you know, just commenting on other people's bodies. And something that I've reflected on, and just from personal experience and talking to others is that, you know, when when these things happen, we kind of cognitively know that this other person means well. And in the traditional olden days, (laughs) it was probably something that was a comment of care. The intention was always to care because, you know, being fed well and looking well because of things that you've been eating, having enough to eat was something that was was applauded and valued at the time. And so I think because of like periods of famine in in the history of Chinese people, I think that in itself was something that was, the intention of it started out in a very, very care, caring way, something that came from an intention of care Um, But then, because of the ways that our times have evolved and meanings have evolved, which kind of goes with how language evolves over time and how language is a very contextually based phenomenon, we have social media now. And more often than not, on social media, we'll constantly be bombarded with messaging telling us that gaining weight is bad and eating past fullness and, you know, having eating all of these these things are bad, these things are good and labeling foods. And so this language, which was contextually back in the day, you know, in that context was a caring came from caring intentions now takes on new meaning. And I think that's why we have generational gaps in um, language patterns and the meaning and communication patterns, because I don't think sometimes our relatives who grew up in a different time than we did understand fully why these comments hurt so much. They didn't have social media pressures or to the extent that we did have social media pressures that kind of feed us these messages and make us internalize these messages. So there's definitely an understanding gap or a gap in understanding between generations and a a gap in intention and action. (laughs) So that's the way I interpret that.
1: What do you think about how Chinese girls grew up with those kind of comments, or they're more susceptible to these kind of comments from people who are not aware mm. how what they say can cause quite mm. damaging behavior.
0: But how about boys? Hmm, That is really interesting. And I previously did quite a lot of work with kind of female experience and obviously with my own experience with, with these issues. And so the the way I talk about kind of the male experience is purely kind of just like reading some studies. And I just wanted to caveat that. Cause I, I, feel hesitant to speak for that population. And that's why we're having this podcast, right? Like I really hope that when we do start this conversation, more people will start to share their stories and start to feel like they can be part of the conversation. So, hey, everyone, this is an invitation for you to join and to share exactly. your experiences and to add to this conversation. So from what I understand and just what I've read so far, I think a lot of the time we might miss signs of different or different manifestations of eating pathology in, in boys. And this can manifest because of the comments we make towards, I'll give you an example. I interviewed some women for a part of the research that I did in the past. And during one of the conversations we had, the interviewee was telling me about how at a family dinner gathering, relatives, or let's say the grandmother would be saying to her, oh, make sure that you stay slim and eat less. It's important for women to look pretty. And then this grandmother would then say to her brother, make sure you eat more like men need to be strong and look buff or, you know, not, I don't think that there's a Cantonese word that directly (laughs) translates from buff, but essentially make sure that you look strong just like a man should look. And so I think in tandem with women kind of receiving these comments, men also receive comments of a different kind and different messages. And that leads to different manifestations of of eating pathology. So for example, in men, the the pathology that might come up is the need to to eat enough to to look stronger or to go to the gym and engage in very restrictive patterns of eating and exercising in order to look bigger or stronger. So the manifestations of how people interpret and carry out kind of these body image expectations are different, but the kinds of mental health Consequences of that are things that we cannot tell or we cannot kind of predict from the outside. So this is something that's an internal experience, hence why story sharing is so important.
1: And it's not just about boys hearing these comments. It's also girls who grew up hearing these comments mm. about boys. And that starts the whole perpetuating of, of these expectations from the other, from the other gender that sure. they might start to link... Uh, men or boys who look a certain way to be more viable partners mm. and of course girls are going to talk oh, and when girls here. talk there's going to be one person or whoever who's going to be telling the boys so mm. and yeah. thus boys hear it from both ends they don't just hear it from the dads or the older brothers they hear it from other girls who are friends yeah and i can imagine how impactful that is for young men where self-esteem and confidence are just starting to brew and they're starting to listen to different types of role models for example athletes. Like mm. I I don't think I've grew up hearing about athletes who are human. Mm. We only hear about superhero athletes. Mm. They are disciplined, they are tough, they put in hard work, but We don't hear anything about the sacrifices they have to make or how they suffer from eating disorders as well. I mean, male athletes are two to three times more likely to develop eating disorders. Hmm. But we don't hear about that on mainstream media as much. We don't hear about how they have to cope with their anxiety and depression and stuff while having the pressure of presenting this strong, stoic Hmm. persona.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important what you said about we don't see athletes as, or we don't see them presented as human beings. Almost. They're just like superhuman, their bodies can do anything. And we don't see, you know, it's interesting to me because I've spoken to quite a few athletes who have experienced eating disorders and it's such a backstage thing because it's almost like, you know, as long as I can perform in the sport, then I'm good. And this emotional, psychological distress is something that I, I kind of handle in the, in the backdrop. So, I think it's so important that you bring up these struggles that we don't see, but actually have take such a toll on the mental health of these people that we kind of just perceive as just just these these stoic indomitable figures.
1: Looking at role models, I mean, not everyone grew up having a sensible, strong, not in a sense of mental toughness, but mental agility. Mm. Um, they have the yeah. ability to practice emotional intelligence, emotional agility they're able to access empathy they're able to access mm. and practice compassion but these are things that we don't hear as often and what i love about your mission on body banter is that you lend language and you cultivate courage <laughs> please expand on that on what mm. can we do not necessarily just talking more about it but perhaps i start with this what are some mm. common eating disorders particularly within boys and men?
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great place to start, actually, so. just to, to think about. Something interesting that I've come across in the literature is that all of the eating disorders are actually, especially with the more common ones that we see with anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder, all of them are actually usually rooted in, in restriction first first and foremost, what people see usually in the media or just kind of the symptom list that you might see on like WebMD, for example. With binge eating disorder, the presenting symptom is that the person will eat a quote unquote unusually large amount of food within a certain amount of time. So that's the kind of presenting symptom we see. But what a lot of people don't really appreciate about eating disorders is that it usually comes from a place of either mental or actual restriction. So the person might be feeling very restricted, let's say in their own life regarding whether they can express their emotions. That's a form of mental restriction, telling themselves that they can't eat certain things, even if they, you know, even if they actually do, you know, this is something that's a forbidden food. I can only eat these things on my quote unquote cheat meal. We hear a lot of this language surrounding things that are restricted to us. And this is, you know, I'll I'll be good tomorrow because today is my cheat day. And, you know, there's a lot of this kind of restrictive mentality and eating disorders, whether or not the person actually restricts is one thing. And another thing is when the person actually engages in these behaviors that are considered disordered, it's usually a response to um, something that they've, either mentally restricted or actually restricted. There are lots of overlaps between eating disorders for this reason. So people who develop anorexia in recovery, they might then develop binge eating disorder or bulimia because there has been this period where they have severely mentally and physically restricted their food intake. So naturally their bodies then swing to the other side of this pendulum and kind of grasp onto something that feels safe. And there's a lot of blame narrative, the the blame narrative is strong surrounding the other end of the spectrum with kind of like quote unquote overeating because we have learned to see being fat or gaining weight as bad, but people just don't see that it's the same, the, the two sides of the same coin. In your personal experience as well as community
1: experience mm. within the health, fitness, and wellness circle in Hong Kong, because you are mm. you are well-known in Hong Kong in gym culture, we hear a lot about fasting, restrictive eating, different forms <laughs> of fasting. For some people do long-form fasting where they just do seven days up to two weeks of no food, only water. Some people go to the extreme mm. of no water, and they may not see it as like a quick weight loss, but for some, depending on who they follow in mainstream media... They are told that this is a form of suffering and suffering is good because suffering will toughen you up. Now, I believe, personally there are other ways to toughen yourself up. Fasting is not for everybody. What are your thoughts based on your own personal experience and what you observe in the community?
0: Woo, big question. And I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> I think the first thing that I would start with is that I understand that every person has a different approach to what they perceive to be the correct or you know best way of eating and exercising and that is exactly the key to it which is everyone has a different approach and the problem i see with the wellness culture and a diet culture which i'll i'll kind of unpack a little bit more of the kind of those those things in just a second but i think that the problem with that with these kinds of messaging is that it promotes a certain kind of approach let's say for example intermittent fasting as the only or best approach for every person. And then there will be a horde of studies saying, you know, why this should, how this can be tailored for different people. But across the board, the goal is to say this is a one size fits all approach that everyone should. Um, and, you know, the should is in quotations. <laughs> um, just saying that this is something that for your own good and for the collective good, almost, this is something that you should practice because it's good for discipline and it's good for your health. And, you know, that's that's the common messaging we get. But what actually is the case is that every body is so different. And even within the same body, we have different needs every day. So something that feels good on one day, let's say you've done one day of fasting and you feel fantastic, that might not be for you the next day. And I think that is hard for people to accept and to grasp because we always we like patterns and human beings like categories and patterns and reliability and stability. And so food, unfortunately, is the way that we do that. We wish to stay in our comfort zones within the space of food and body, because that's one of the things in our lives that we perceive to be able to control. And, you know, from a psychological perspective, that makes a lot of sense, why we would, why this is how we practice that kind of value system. And our needs, because it can feel like it's so much within our control. So I empathize with that. And I also think just like you were saying, there are other ways to, to practice that or to kind of help us ourselves feel safe and other ways to train up a, a kind of an acceptance of flexibility in life. You know, that's, that's the way I feel is the most compassionate way for ourselves understanding that not every day is going to be different. that our bodies, although maybe 90% of the time it works for 90% of the people doesn't mean it's going to it's going to suit us. And that is I, I really hope that more people can can understand that that our bodies can change each day and that just because many people practice the same thing and it's worked for so many people doesn't mean it necessarily is going to be the best approach for us. Two things
1: that came up for me when, <laughs> when you were sharing that. I was nodding really hard. And I would like to present the perspective of some of the guys I have in mind when we talk about this topic mm. and there's two things. One, understanding that just because it works for us doesn't mean it works for someone else. It's not a common concept that I think every person shares. Some people mm. just truly live in their own world and think, look, if I can do it, you can do it. That yeah. message can also be harmful. It's, it's meant to be motivating. At the same time, mm, it's not I motivating sure for everybody. So that's one. Mm. Uh, and 1.1a that is, if they see someone else not putting in the same amount of work, and their definition of work might be you just need the discipline, you just need control. And they would then deem yeah. this person to be weak to have no discipline, and lose respect for that person. Mm. So that plays a lot into Mm. how they identify somebody else. At the same time, I think these are the same people who identify themselves through their food practices, through their exercise practices. For them, they Mm. might identify themselves as, look, I get up every morning and I go for an hour run, no fail. And just to use the Mm. word fail in that context says a lot about Well, if you don't go out for a run one morning because you were sick and it's just not smart for your body to go out for a run, do you then see yourself as a failure because you broke your record or something like that? So how much Mm -hmm. of this do you think ties into our
0: identity and how can we navigate around that? I'm so glad you brought that up, You know, the idea of identity and how much this plays into, I guess, Eating and body image concerns, and something that I wanted to touch on from the previous points about diet culture and wellness culture. There's this great dietitian um, psychologist. I believe she previously was a journalist as well. Her name is Christy Harrison, and she talks a lot about this kind of the way that wellness culture. So nowadays, where we, we where we use the words well-being and health, and these kinds of words start to become so intermingled with what was previously diet. Or don't be fat, you know, like those kinds of messages are now just be be healthy instead of don't gain weight. It's just been replaced by different words. But the underlying assumption is that if you don't follow these rules, you're a bad person and you're lazy and undisciplined. So that is kind of that's a very blunt way of saying that these are these are just the messages we get, but in different packaged in a different way in in the in health packaging or the wellness culture packaging. So going back to identity, again, I really empathize with people who feel this way, that who feel like, let's say, my my eating and exercising behaviors define me. I've experienced that, you know, that was something that I really latched onto in my teen years because identity played so much into it. I was searching for a sense of purpose, identity in life, and it was easy to find that through the lens of diet culture and wellness culture, it was something that told me, hey, if you exercise in this way, if you eat in this way, then you're naturally, poof, you're going to be a successful and respectable and accepted, loved person. You're going to be admired for what you do, right? And so that messaging is, it's so irresistible. I think any person would feel inclined to at least try it out. Hence why we have such successful kind of, you know, marketing campaigns of like a before and after photos and wanting to, to look a certain way to be a certain way. So it's a very appealing message. And so I understand why people will gravitate towards it. And also in my eating disorder recovery, I've understood how colorful identity can be. And obviously the first stage of discovering your identity, you first have to, I think, Oftentimes we first have to come to a kind of a wrong place first to see it as a rigid thing and be like, hey, actually, that's not how I feel most fulfilled and purposeful. And then slowly, whether it's attaching to eating and and kind of exercising behaviors, that's how some people find out. (laughs) That was how I found out. And then in recovery, I was like, okay, so actually there are so many pieces of like my life's pie that I can fill my sense of identity with, whether that's enjoying music, spending time with friends, moving my, bodies and my body in ways that are not attached to trying to get a certain appearance outcome, just feeling good in it, just finding these different pieces of the pie. And that's something that often comes after endorsing a more rigid understanding of identity
1: it really takes us to be in the wrong place to realize this is not where we want to be. This is not how we want to feel. I think people are afraid to make mistakes. A lot of people are afraid to make mistakes because they don't want to be in the wrong place. But essentially, being there tells you more than you spending your whole life trying to avoid it and trying to be restrictive. Absolutely. And I, I resonate with you when Actually, so a light bulb moment came up for me when we were talking about <laughs> wanting to control things. I, that goes back to like at the beginning of the episode, when we we're talking about what body image is and, and how that leaks into eating disorders. And I think it's important to also yeah. preface this that I, I don't want people to think that we are just two people talking about topics that are trending right now, but not necessarily have lived experiences. You have your lived experiences. Mine are not the same, mine are slightly different, mm-hmm. but I think they all fall in a similar bracket. And that is, I had body dysmorphia before. I always thought that I was bigger and fatter than I actually was. Whereas now, Mm -hmm. 10 years later, when I look at photos of myself like 10, 15 years ago, I'm thinking, oh, who's that girl? She looks good. (laughs) What was I thinking? All that, all those kind of (laughs) thoughts. I'm sure people can relate to it right now. Even if you're 25, you'd be looking at your photos at 15 and go, what was I thinking? I look good. That kind of thoughts. Yeah. When I started competing in the uh, physique competition, I was competing in, in pole as well. So, all of these competitions have something to do with how I needed my body to perform, but also how my body needed to look in different sport. Mm. And okay. through that journey, it was about, I spent about a year in total tracking my macros. Mm. Imagine this we're trying to go out to dinner with friends, and I'm breaking down my burger, weighing the bun separately to the patty, separately to the tomatoes, separately to the sauce. We were just clowns at the table, but we felt more accepted at the table because it was the gym social. Now I did the same thing Mm. at a different table where people weren't in, they don't go to the same gym. They don't even work out the same way. They probably do Pilates or they don't even train at all. Their reaction was by far the the funniest, but also the loudest (laughs) to to my soul. Like, oh my gosh, is this really not normal? You get into that stage where you think this is just normal because you feel like you're in control. And I was wondering at the time, why do I feel so good about tracking my macros? And that light bulb moment came up about control. If this is the only aspect in my life I can control, I'm going to latch on to this because I didn't feel like I could control any other factors in my life. And for me, Mm -hmm. that would be understanding what emotions are, identifying emotions, Mm -hmm. how to navigate the effects of feeling those emotions. I'm doing this because Mm -hmm. of this. And when I thought I felt good, might not be the healthy kind of good that has longevity to it.
0: Absolutely. So,
1: yeah. Ten years ago, if someone were to tell me, uh, "What you're doing right now, these are red flags for poor mental health, actually, and poor coping mechanisms and skills," mm-hmm. I think me at the time would have just brushed them off. So, mm-hmm. yeah. what I wish at the time was someone who can lend me language and and help me cultivate conversations that that is inviting and not judgmental that is not overwhelming but open and receiving so how do you think we can highlight these Mm. red flags that would be more well received within men and women together and separately because the conversation is slightly different and with any parent or professional or partner that that works
0: and support
1: men and differently women
0: First of all, thanks for sharing that and highlighting that we're coming to this topic from a place of truly just, you know, reflecting on our own experiences and caring. So I I love that you highlighted that and just then shared your experience, which is really powerful. And I think it actually is my answer to this question. I think the way to bring up more compassionate conversations or to bring up red flags, potentially worry about someone is to start from a place of like, I've noticed, or I care about you. You know i think that's the most compassionate way to start a conversation to be like as someone who cares about you this is something i'd like to bring up in conversation and start a and, and start a discussion with you bring this to your attention so that perhaps we can kind of take a collaborative team approach to addressing this in your life so i think you've already very nicely illustrated how to do that how to bring that up in conversation starting from a personal place and then another thing is that I, I recently talked about this and I literally created this reel yesterday. <laughs> I was thinking about how to start a conversation on topics that perhaps can be um, more challenging and perhaps where you have differing opinions with the person that you're speaking to. And I think, first of all, as we said, you know, starting from a personal place, speaking from your own perspective, and then also acknowledging the other person's concerns, because I think that they... The other person will always have their reasons that they deem very reasonable, just like you do. And seeing that and empathizing with that and saying, yeah, I hear you. It probably, it definitely sucks to have these body image expectations that you're being, you know, you're being subjected to just being like, yeah, I see the ads that tell men to toughen up and hearing that perspective, then bringing your perspective to the table as well. Telling them that you appreciate their efforts that they're making right now. So the reel I created yesterday was about someone talking about dieting with, with a person who, you know, in my perspective, uh, yeah, and the other character in that reel was myself. And clearly I'm not a fan of the culture. <laughs> and I would have responded, like, I admire that you're trying to explore different ways of caring for your health. And this is clearly something you're trying to do to improve your life everyone goes into dieting thinking that they are going to improve their life. So having empathy for that. And on this particular topic, having empathy for the fact that this this person you're speaking to in your life is trying to do the best for themselves in terms of being accepted, being recognized for who they are on the inside. And perhaps that means sticking to body image expectations that are really unrealistic. And then the third thing is Bringing it back or wrapping up the conversation with, with a sense of like wanting to connect with this person, saying something like, Hey, maybe we could go check out some cool resources together later. Or I saw this really cool article and I'll share it with you later. It has some really great thoughts. It's like not pressuring you to to look at this or agree with me, but this is a really cool resource I saw last week. I'll share it with you later. Those are the three things I would kind of bring to the table in terms of having a, a compassionate conversation.
1: I like that you wrapped it up with wanting to connect and inviting acceptance there.
0: It's so important. I think sometimes these conversations can separate us. Like it can really make us feel so distant from this person that we actually really care about. But starting from a place of like, I care about you, first of all, then saying, I see you. And then here's my intention to connect. It's, I mean, in my experience, that's been the most kind of most reliable way that kind of gets my point across and i also sometimes realize that i haven't heard that person's opinion fully until that point and it comes to a place of mutual understanding or at least mutual empathy doesn't people don't always have to agree with each other in these conversations and that's often not the goal you come to a place where you're like ah i i see where you 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 are coming from (laughs) and we can work with that at
1: least I find that I have to be very cautious when it comes to conversations or saying anything that might be misinterpreted as criticism. Hmm. In my personal experience, and and when they interpret it as a criticism, they don't feel accepted for who they are. They then go back into the stereotypical narratives of, oh, this woman wants me to change. And that's, Hmm. again in highlighting the point of why simple taglines like that or simple phrases like that can be so harmful because we immediately fall back on those narratives, regardless of gender. But I find that that is a very reasonable and fair way to bring it up, specifically with men. It's really not about finding the right words per se, but it's the nonverbal. It's the tone. It's the attitude. It's the intention.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, Sometimes it can just come out so differently, You're right about that. And I just wanted to talk about really quickly just that idea you were talking about criticism and why that might be received not in is received poorly in in some men and a lot of men that you've in you've interacted with. And I think it ties a lot actually. Now that I'm thinking about it, um, to toxic masculinity norms because there's often this competitive edge to the way that these norms are presented. And it's almost like you have to one up every person, (laughs) every dude that you're in, in the gym bro community. It's like, you have to one up everyone. And that's the way that you show status and you show that you're disciplined and you're cooler than everyone else. (laughs) Perhaps there is kind of a link to why criticism might be taken as a challenge and why perhaps creating a, a new norm of showing more compassion and kind of teamwork can change the ways that you have those conversations when you want to help someone and support them in creating change that perhaps you think could be interesting for them to explore. Framing it as an I care and so let's do this together instead of like, you're doing this wrong and so please go and fix yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a lot of the narrative, like no pain, no gain, go do the work, like get down to it, you know, all these kinds of very like tough trainer narratives, you know, just like sweat is fat crying. I hate that one. Like so much not scientifically valid.
1: <laughs> All right. So what you just touched on there, I think that Warren's a different episode and that is something very interesting yeah, to me really. as well when it comes to a- approaching the topic on mental health, regardless of gender, it's just mm. in, within romantic relationships. Because that can harbor so much resentment and misinterpretation. And there's just so much pressure there that most sure. likely are self-inflected most of the time. But hey, Steph, thank you so much on sharing time and your energy and your brain juice. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I, I, I definitely want you back on again. And I'm so excited for what we're doing together on Tackling Minds and mental muscle in the future.
0: Oh, it's so exciting. And I have loved this brain juice filled conversation between the two of us. It's always a good time. And thank you for having me.